Hey, this is Alyssa Paget, and you're listening to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 214. The RV Entrepreneur is a weekly show for nomadic entrepreneurs and you guys pick today's interview. A few weeks ago, I asked our RV Entrepreneur Facebook group what topics y'all really wanted to hear more about on the show, and the number one winner was real estate investing. Consulting and crafting were at the top of the list too, so you can look forward to some episodes on those topics here soon. But today we're talking all about real estate investing as a way to make passive income while traveling with Jordan Knoll. Jordan spent four years researching the RV lifestyle and making a plan for how she and her husband Ian could travel full time. And during that time, she was just focused on researching and devouring podcasts on travel and financial freedom and working on the road like this one. That's a whole lot of Heath, four years of Heath. So I'm imagining that she listened to probably hundreds of podcasts in that time. And she said, based on everything that she heard, there was one secret that she heard over and over and over that if you want financial freedom, if you want to retire early, if you want to travel the world and not be worrying about money, there is one thing you needed, passive income through real estate investments. And so in this episode, Heath and Jordan dive deep into everything she has learned since becoming a realtor and now owning seven different rental properties in Michigan. As always, if you hear something mentioned in the show that you want to remember or you mention a, a resource or a website that you want to go back to, we write all that handy stuff down in our episode show notes over at heathandalyssa.com. Now, before I hand the mic over to Heath and Jordan, I want to say a quick thank you to today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Air Skirts, a company that makes inflatable skirting for RVs. We've been in the snow way too many times in our RV, sometimes intentionally, and RVs get like crazy cold in the winter, which is why skirting is highly recommended to insulate your rig and protect you from burst pipes. But skirts tend to be a lot of work. You have to like drill all these holes into your rig and then hang up this kind of flimsy vinyl or you use like a crap ton of styrofoam and you kind of duct tape it to your rig and then you just throw it away at the end of the season because it doesn't look really good. Air skirts are a more beautiful, inflatable option that's built to outlive your RV. So if you sell your RV and you get a new one, the skirt can come with you. They have skirt sizes for every type of RV, and you can see all the different options at airskirts.com. You can use our link in the show notes and get $50 off of your purchase. Thank you to Air Skirts for sponsoring this episode. I wish I had known you guys existed when we were in 10 inches of snow in October because it was really cold and we ran out of propane and I couldn't make my coffee one morning. It was a very horrible experience, so highly recommend skirts if you're going to be wintering in an RV. Okay, now let's get into how to manage a real estate investment property while RVing full-time with Heath and Jordan. Jordan, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You bet. So my first question is, what is it like planning for four years to hit the road in an RV only to have a global pandemic set in? Uh, it's, <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, it really felt like we needed to be open to change this year. It really tests your ability to adapt. So we're a little bummed out, but glad we at least got six months on the road after all that planning. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> This is something that you guys are looking forward to for a long time. So 
I guess that brief window, the good news is it probably didn't have enough time to get burned down on it. I know people that have read for years and years and they still love it. And it's still an integral part of their life, whether they're on the road full-time or part-time or weekends or whatever. But for you guys, it's almost like pursuing a boyfriend or girlfriend for a long time and getting to spend a little bit of time with them. And then they like have to go overseas or something. It's almost like you really didn't get to, this is a terrible correlation, but it's like, I'm assuming there's still a lot of like uh, honeymoon eyes on travel for you guys, I would imagine. Yeah, I think that we still are excited about travel. It definitely gave us a good six-month window to learn about our travel style because it definitely was different than what we expected. You know, like we thought we'd be these like overlanding adventure people who could like live off-grid for two weeks. And we kind of found out we're like somewhere in between RV park lovers and off-grid wild people. You know, like we definitely can go a week without a shower if need be, but like we like to have that balance. So that's something we didn't expect to find out before leaving. And that six month window really gave us a chance to explore that with, like you said, knowing that we're like at the end, we're like, okay, we're going to go home and put roots down because of coronavirus. So we can tough it out for a couple more weeks and then go home and live the cushy house lifestyle for a little while. So of the six months that you guys were on the road for, what was the highlight? Oh man, just exploring. Mexico was the highlight. That was two months of our six month trip and just seeing how easy it was to travel there and like the variety of things to see. And obviously the cost too, that was my husband's favorite part was the, was the budget friendly nature of Mexico, but you just meet so many like Europeans and South American people who are doing the Pan American highway. Like that's something we would have never run across in our local neighborhoods. You know, I'm I'm curious of all, like you, you guys, were planners and you spent a lot of time kind of researching RVing and your very first trip was Florida to Mexico after you had rehabbed your RV. What was it that Florida, what was it that Mexico attracted you? Why was it that Mexico attracted you versus, you know, like a lot of people start with national parks or something like that? Um, I think we've done enough travel in our time and been to enough national parks just in our normal two week vacation that we used to have at our corporate life that we wanted something a little bit more adventurous and we love the beach and we had seen other YouTubers, you know, do the travel to Mexico thing and it just really looked like it was right up our alley. You know, Florida was kind of a necessity because we ran out of warm weather here in Michigan to finish our build out and both of our fathers winter in Mexico Mm. or I mean in Florida sorry my dad does winters in Florida and Ian's dad lives in Florida so we had like a nice place to go finish our build out and finish our planning for the Mexico leg of our trip nice I want to start at the beginning of your story so the whole idea was with you and Ian that you decided to not have kids and effectively that you're going to prioritize travel but you both had corporate jobs I know I'm telling your whole story for you so but, (laughs) but effectively you realize that a corporate path to being able to just take two week vacations wasn't going to be conducive for the type of travel that you wanted to do. So of all the things that you could have done as far as starting your own business that allowed you to travel, why did you land on real estate? What was kind of the idea with pursuing real estate as a path towards being able to travel? 
I think that the flexibility of real estate was the main reason. Um, we were kind of, we were already on like a, a financial path. So like we did the Dave Ramsey get out of debt thing for a few years. And then we started, you know, we bought our first investment property. And then like I was binging in my outside sales job, binging on podcasts and every early retirement podcast you listen to, there is some element of real estate in there and the passivity of rental income. And so that's when we started realizing like the fastest track is through rental properties. You know, like we don't have a hundred thousand dollars a year to put into index funds for a nest egg every year to get us there quickly. But if you buy rental properties, you kind of exponentially speed up that timeline to have the nest egg you want and feel comfortable, but also income every month to be able to go do things and have freedom. So that's real estate's really like the only thing we've found where you can like have freedom of time, but also have the flexibility and the income level that you need to live on. You know, it's a lot of hard work on the front end, but once you get things really ironed out and set up and get a niche and, you know, make yourself knowledgeable in a certain area, it's really hands off. Like now we're at the point where it's like maybe five hours a month total, you know, for all of our properties, usually less than that, maybe 30 minutes a month that we spend on it other than bookkeeping. So that was the main reason, just because we kind of saw the potential for being able to be off grid and use other contacts to run our business while we were gone. Can you walk me through kind of a timeline of the, like listening to these podcasts, realizing real estate was a good path towards creating freedom and, you know, being able to retire early and things like that into your, when did you get your first rental property? Okay, so it started, the roles actually kind of reversed. So our first property was when we lived in Columbus, Ohio for work. My husband was the one driving that train. He said, I want a house before we get engaged. And so that house came first. That was a fixer upper. And we got to a point, it was like sometime between like 2015-ish that I really started getting into like the podcasts and planning. So when we decided we wanted to move back to Michigan, we bought our first duplex in Grand Rapids with the profit from our Columbus house in 2015. So that was our first duplex. That one we lived in, it took us three years to finish it. We had to take it all the way down to the studs. We bought it for like $85,000. And um, from there we lived in that. And before it was fully complete, we had saved up some money again. And we bought another house in 2017, just a cheap like hoarder house that we had again to like gut rehab, put all of our money into. So it really started picking up like in 2017. And, and sometime during this period, you went out and you were an outside sales rep at L'Oreal mm -hmm. and then you went and got your realtor's license, but you don't really need a realtor's license just to buy fixer uppers and do that. So what was the intent with getting the realtor's license? So it was kind of twofold. We um, are the type of investors where we like to do a lot of our own work. We buy really crappy houses because we want a good deal. It's really difficult to find agents who will show you 15 houses under $100,000 because they're not making that much money on it when you finally buy one. So that was one thing is we felt like we were putting people out to try and look at the houses we needed to find. So one reason I got it was to help our own business. Reason number two is because I saw it as a possible exit strategy from my job. Like I was very unhappy. I was on a plane every week at a certain point going across country. Um, so I really needed a light at the end of the tunnel for myself as we started buying more rental properties. So for me, it was like something to keep me motivated and get me closer to where I wanted to be while Ian continued to work his corporate job. Got it. No, that, that makes total sense. As far as like 
buying a house, you know, how much, how much do you guys try to put down on these houses? Are you concerned with things like PM, is it PMI, like the mm-hmm. insurance? Yeah. For, for if you don't put enough down and then, you know, how, how you look at how much you want to invest in these properties? Like, is there a particular case where you can kind of go through that start to finish and say like, and here's how much we're making like a month to month on this long-term lease. And that what that's a success. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of different strategies you can take. The market's different now than when we did the majority of our investing a couple of years ago. So in general, our strategy was, and this works for a lot of my investor clients that I work with too, is like they have corporate jobs. So they leverage their A, their high credit score and B, their W2 income or their business income. That's very steady. And that's how you really get the ability and access to loans. Conventional loans are obviously going to be the cheapest, but like I have some investors who use their VA benefit so they can put $0 into a deal and just live for free in like a four unit or a two unit um, for a couple of years. For us, our strategy was to put, you know, 10% down, 15% down, whatever your bank is requiring for a single family or multifamily. And then the way we run the numbers is always based off of what its value will be when we're done fixing it up how much money it's going to take to fix it up because we were paying all of our stuff out of pocket with our paychecks. Like we literally were living on nothing and putting, you know, maybe $4,000 a month into our rehabs. Um, and then the rent rate at the end. So, you know, three years ago, rents were a little lower and that's why we bought lower houses price wise to do our own sweat equity into it rather than putting money into it. Um, and like, for example, the one, the second house we bought is in a little riskier neighborhood. It's a little bit more on the developing side and we weren't sure how easy it would be to rent. So like for that one, we paid cash for it. And that one is still paid off because it's less risk if you have less debt. Um, that's just our take. I do have plenty of investor clients who use like hard money loans at 10% interest, whatever, but probably a good, um, example is this duplex that we just bought this year out of necessity of needing a place to stay during COVID because our home was rented out and it will be rented out till next year. So this house is more like the current market here in Grand Rapids where we live. Um, we bought this duplex for 215,000. We live in half of it, which means we could have put as little as 10% down. We ended up putting 15% down because actually the rate was better. Um, We could have put 20% down and that would get rid of what you're talking about, the PMI, which is mortgage insurance. But actually our rate went up with a 20% down loan. So it was actually more financially responsible to take the PMI, which is like $15 a month for us and do 15% down in this house. So we have 15% equity. Now, this is a side-by-side duplex. It's currently like a raised ranch. So it has a downstairs like extra living room and like a utility room. And so it's a two bed, one bath on the main floor. We are rehabbing the side we live in and then we'll move into the other side this spring and rehab that side and make each side a four bedroom, two bath. So we're basically doubling our potential rent income. So while we paid more than double for this duplex than we normally do, like we used to buy houses for like 80,000, 85,000. The numbers make sense here because our rents are starting to come up here locally. And so we have the potential to make $4,000 a month in rent on this house. Wow. Nice. For a house we page. Yeah. So that's like my current strategy is just really finding value within your portfolio to like maximize the value because rents are starting to come up where we live. 
have you always been really handy to be able to come in and just fix stuff? Cause that, that part is a little bit mm-hmm. intimidating for me. Obviously you can learn anything on YouTube if you're willing to learn it, but have you always been really handy to go in and just fix stuff up? Cause I'm assuming that makes the numbers work a heck of a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Contractors are definitely the biggest variable right now. Cause they're super expensive. Cause everybody's so busy. Um, Ian's always been quite handy. I mean, he is an engineer. He's got that patience where he can sit down and really tinker with things until he figures them out. Um, so he's always been a little bit handy and had the tools and stuff like that that he's grown up with but it's definitely been a learning process our quality of work from our first house to here is like night and day different like we're professional quality now um, with our work and I've taken over more of like the painting like I do all the painting I do a lot of the tile work also um, I re- if we have hardwood floors to refinish, I usually take on that project too. So those are things that we've like learned over time, but definitely it helps if you have patience to learn things. Cause that's like my biggest downfall is I get frustrated and I quit and I like throw things and I'm like, you take care of this. <laughs> so it's actually been kind of a blessing for me with my real estate business being so busy this summer that I was like, Ian, like you handle that and I'll be over here making money because I don't enjoy a lot of the dirty, hard construction work but yeah it it is something unique to us I think I I think everybody can do it it's a lot of nights and weekends and using a lot of your free time so we definitely like sacrificed a lot of social time in those years that we were building up but it definitely made the numbers work and like it probably added five years onto our timeline like gave us an extra five years of freedom just for keeping the budget as tight as we did as a complete side note I like I know everyone's different, but just in being in our new place here in Colorado and doing little weekend projects in the yard or in the house or painting or something, if, I feel like it's been really good bonding time with Alyssa. Sure. So I mean, I think it's something that you you are doing something with your hands, your phone is not in between you or your computer. And so there's something really good, I think, just from a relational aspect of doing this with a partner. Oh, for sure. And like, we've definitely had our moments. I definitely think those years are like what made us the closest and able to say, let's live in a 20 foot RV together all the time. But like, we had one really stressful rehab. It was that second house we bought. And we had two rehab projects happening at the same time. We were working full time and this toilet kept leaking. It leaked like for a fourth time and Ian almost threw it through a wall. Like he was, he does not get upset, but he got so upset. And so like, we definitely went to marriage counseling that year and worked it out because these rehab projects like you know the communication is key just like anything in life but you're right like that is the make or break the stress of those projects can really bring it out why why did you guys decide to go with long-term uh all your seven units are Mm long-term uh rentals why did you do that versus short-term So here in Grand Rapids, it's a little bit more regulated on the vacation rental side right now. Um, We started investing before Airbnb was even around, first of all, and like those kind of vacation rentals. Um, And this wasn't as much of a tourist destination either. Right now it's really popular, but like in 2015, it really wasn't that much going on even. Um, So for us, I think the long term was where we were going to get the most profit, but also for planning and like management while we're gone. Once we get someone signed on a lease, get them moved in and comfortable, we barely hear from them for an entire year. Whereas if you have a vacation rental, yes, you might have a potential for more um, income, but it's a lot more variable. You know, like this coronavirus, I think has proven that like with some of the Airbnb owners have really struggled in the beginning with shutdowns. And then too, like 
you're going to be the one managing it or paying a manager. So you have a lot more overhead. You know, you also have to furnish the unit. You have to do linens and laundry and housekeeping and all those things. And with us wanting to travel, the long term was the way to go because then it's all on the tenant. You know, they pay their own utilities. They call us if there's an emergency or something breaks. But even if we're gone, like it's not hard to call a plumber to get them to go to the house and coordinate with the tenant because we want them to feel like it's their home, mm. you know, and, and most and we spend a lot of time on the front end screening people. So those are the types of tenants we look for who are going to respect the property and really, you know, treat it well and, and be responsible. So that was mostly why the long-term. Yeah, I know that that makes total sense. It's a lot more turnkey as you're on the road. So can, can you walk me through the process, Jordan, of like finding sourcing tenants, like what tools or application processes are using to find good people? Because if you do find bad tenants, you have to worry about replacing them or fixing stuff on the house. Like that would be a major headache to manage while you're also on the road. Mm -hmm. So can you walk me through finding good tenants and the way that you guys have approached that? And then also just kind of the ongoing tools, I guess, for managing your now portfolio properties, you know, both at a high level and also the individual ones. Yeah. So the biggest thing for us in the beginning that I would recommend for anyone anywhere in the country considering this is that we have a really great local rental property owners association. Um, and they have classes on like lease law evictions, you know, screening tenants and like the laws around fair housing and how to interview. They also have tons of resources. So all of our lease documents are written up by the lawyers for this rental property organization. And so by having membership, we get access to all of that for free. So that was thing one um, for the documents and understanding how to be a landlord. Um, as far as how we screen our tenants and where we find most of our tenants, Honestly, in the last three years, we found most of our tenants through Facebook Marketplace. We post our rental for, li we list it on Facebook Marketplace with all, we, we do get professional photos taken. That has been a great investment for us as far as attracting the right tenants because it makes the house look amazing. Um, so we post on Facebook Marketplace. We post on Zillow in the past. I'm not sure if we will this year because they're starting to charge landlords for using their platform. And then we, the biggest tool for us is called Cozy. It's C-O-Z-Y.co. And that's a website we've used since the very beginning. And it does all of our management. It's totally free for us to use. And we use it to, that's where our potential tenants apply and get screened. And that's where they pay their rent. Um, we can upload all their lease documents there. And then that way too, like we have a lot of young professionals who rent from us. And if they have roommates, they can all split their rent right on this website and pay their portion. You know, we can pay, you know, charge rent, any kind of fees, like pet fees or anything like that on there. It's like amazing. So everything's online and we just check it once a month. So while we were on the road, that was like the key to everything. And I recommend it to every landlord I ever meet just because it's so user-friendly and, and it's tenants love it cozy. Mm -hmm, cozy. C-O-Z-Y dot C-O. Got it. Okay, cool. Yep. And so they, they don't charge anything and you can have all your mm -hmm. properties under there, all your tenants pay you directly in there. Have mm -hmm. you guys had to deal with any, um, like what have been a couple of the fires that have come up since you've been managing properties? We've had a couple. So like one year on New Year's Eve, we were like at a wedding on New Year's Eve and a furnace went out and the tenants had been gone all day. So they didn't know it was out. And we were really concerned about the pipes freezing because it's an older house. And so we went there, Ian, we called like one of those, you know, off, what do you call it? Like the on-call 
HVAC people. Mm. They came, they replaced the part. We were back at the wedding by like 11.55 PM. That was probably the most inconvenient call we've ever gotten. You know, if we were on the road and something like that happened, we outline in our lease, like what's an emergency, what's not an emergency, you know, losing heat in winter is an emergency. And like, if he weren't able to get in touch with us, there's a secondary instruction for that tenant to follow. So, you know, if we weren't here, we would have the tenant call that HVAC company get the work done and then we would pay for it when we found out the next day or whatever. Um, that's kind of how we have it set up. So that was one. Well, while we were gone, honestly, in the whole six months that we were gone, the only thing that happened is that one of our units, the refrigerator light bulb burned out. And so we ordered one on Amazon and had it shipped to the house and the tenant just replaced it themselves. Nice. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so. and- and that was, uh, I know you guys have seven units now. When you were traveling last year, was it five? Yeah. Okay, before the duplex, right? And so yeah. in six months of travel, having to reply to order a bulb on Amazon seems like a pretty light lift, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. if somebody's listening to this, you know, there's a lot of different elements. You've been doing this for a while now. So you, you guys are pretty professional at handling and buying rental properties and rehabbing them. But if somebody wants to get started and just mm-hmm. go and try their first one, maybe maybe they have a house, so they're thinking about renting it out, or they are, you know, thinking about buying one and they don't already have a property, like what was some of, what's some of the advice you would give yourself when you were first getting started and going down this path? Um, I think the first thing is that we we were pretty like isolated in our own little bubble of what we were building. And once I got my realtor's license and started meeting more people in the community, that sped things up quite a bit. Like I had so many contacts now that I didn't have when we started that have given us so many good ideas or been our contact person when we're not there. So that's something I would really recommend that would have probably benefited us in the beginning if we had invested a little more time in networking. I mean, you can do that via, there's a website called Bigger Pockets. I know a lot of people who are interested in real estate or know about that website. Um, so meet local realtors on bigger pockets who are interested in investing, meet other investors who are local, join your real rental property owners association. It's usually not that expensive to even like attend an event virtually or in person and meet other people doing what you want to do. Cause they, they know which vendors to stay away from, which ones to hire, you know, they know which property managers are great. Um, that could also even be an easy way for someone to get connected if they don't have a lot of contacts where they're going to be having a rental or where they are currently living is just start interviewing property management companies and say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. How do you, how would you guys manage this? Like you could even do it more hands off than Ian and I do because we, we do self-manage our properties, but like here in Grand Rapids, we have a handful of great property management management companies that you can pay eight to 10% to, and they handle everything. And you literally just get a direct deposit once a month. Mm. So even, you know, sourcing and tenants mm-hmm. and, and, and updates and things like that to the property. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Do you feel you could have done this as successfully if you hadn't gotten your realtor's license? I mean, probably I'm just that type of person that I would have figured it out one way or another. Um, I've even thought about recently getting rid of my license potentially because I have so many contacts locally that I trust who are realtors and would, would help us that now that they know us. I do think that having my license has afforded us a lot more insider knowledge. You know, like I learned a lot about 
real estate from the legal standpoint and negotiating those skills for me got a lot better. It's not like it's far off to negotiate a real estate deal versus like selling to spas and salons. Like you're still trying to close, but it's just different. Like I deal with a lot more different variety of personalities here and, you know, figuring out, how to best strategize like that came from getting my license. I don't think that's necessary for every person by any means, but you know, if you can find a realtor who talks about real estate, like I do, then you're set. Like if you just want someone who's going to be excited and under knows what they're talking about, that's a big thing we run into. Cause you know, to get a realtor's license in Michigan, it's like a 40 hour course. Mm -hmm. So like you, you might have someone who's never owned their own home or even rented their own home trying to sell you a house as a realtor so there's a broad variety of of skill level in the industry and like it's your that's something you have to spend time on if you're interested in this field is like kind of sussing out who knows what and who can help you with what you're interested in because there are so many variety of um strategies you can use yeah no that makes that makes total sense i didn't realize you could get a realtor's license in 40 hours that's yeah it's bad. like I think it cost me like $250 and like $80 for the exam. It was, wow. <laughs> that's why I was able to do it so easily alongside my um, corporate job. And then like in Michigan, like most States, you do have to hang your license at a brokerage. So I have a supervising broker, but it's affiliated with a property management company. And I literally just pay him a fee out of each one of my commissions, a small one, it's like $300. So it's basically, and I charge that as an admin fee to my clients. So it's basically free for me to hang my license. It, it costs me probably about $2,000 a year to keep my license current with continuing ed and some of the other like MLS fees. But you know, if I sell or buy one home a year that justifies having the license. Yeah. And you're able to basically the val the main value is you're able to go look at the houses that fit your portfolio of acquiring mm -hmm. them. What What is the end goal with acquiring properties? Is it to eventually have a portfolio and sell them or sell them individually or just kind of can continue adding more cash flow through rental assets? Like what's the what is the end goal if you have one? So we've been talking about that a lot lately because, you know, things have changed so much this year. And we're like, you know, what does it all mean? You know, you're like really having those conversations. Um, I think for us right now, we have as many tenants as we're happy to have managing it ourselves. So I think we're going to kind of pump the brakes a little bit at unit seven because we have a lot of potential still within each of our properties. So like this one, we're rehabbing to make it four bedrooms, two baths on each side. We have another house with a completely unfinished basement. That's currently a two bedroom, one bath. And we're thinking of like adding a small garage and finishing that basement out. So it's like a three bedroom, two bath. So, you know, little things like that to up our rents. And then I think we're just going to focus on, you know, I'm kind of striking while the iron is hot and working in my realtor business. I have like a few investor clients that have been repeat buying with me here in Grand Rapids. So I'm just kind of going with that while we're stuck here stationary. Um, and then I think we're going to start focusing on like more of our stock investing now that we have this up and running and then like paying down our loans to up the cash flow so that we have more to live on as we get older. And then, um, I don't know. We always daydream about buying a lake house maybe or something. So that when we're here in the summer times, like we have somewhere comfortable to hang out, but that idea comes and goes just depending on the day. Yeah. But no, that, we're pretty that, happy though. Yeah. That makes, that makes total sense. Um, I know one of the things we talked about earlier, this is a bit of a segue, but it's just kind of all the planning and intentionality that went into you guys hitting the road in your RV. And it sounds like you've applied that same type of, 
planning and thoughtfulness around building your portfolio of rental businesses. How did you guys approach hitting the road as RVers? Obviously, you weren't able to like fully execute all the ideas and things that you had, but what did that process look like? Like, what were what were you guys hoping it would be? If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we definitely spout too many hours on YouTube, probably <laughs> like watching your videos, and, like keep your daydream and like all the other full-time RVers. We, we watched a lot of like Kara and Nate and like all those travelers to like figure out what our style was going to be. Um, you know, I think growing up too, and especially for us, like we were in college during the worst of the recession. So we've always been a little scared, I guess you could say. And, you know, so much of our identities are always tied up in our careers that as each year passed, we kind of decided like that wasn't healthy for us necessarily. So planning for travel in that regard was a good way for us to start separating ourselves from who we are at home working in this corporate life. You know what I mean? Like when you, whenever you, you guys have probably gone through this too. Like whenever you choose a unique path, there's always a lot of pushback because you're doing something so different from the norm and it's really scary. So you really have to be solid in knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it to feel confident enough to make the, the move. And I think that's what we really focused on leading up to travel, especially for my husband, who's like, he, he liked his job. He had no complaints. You know, we just knew we wanted something different. So I think the planning, that's why it took so long. Cause we wanted to make sure we we're fully ready. And a lot of like the podcast we we're listening to, you know, YouTube videos, you see it quite a bit actually where people go out and then they have like an existential crisis. So whether they have either retire early or they go out traveling and it's not at all what they thought it was going to be. And then they end up reeling, like, what do I do now? I, I, you know, I put everything into this and I don't like it. So now what do I do? So we, I think we just, instead of doing that in the moment while we were on the road, we tried to have those conversations and think about those things before we left so that we wouldn't be disappointed if, plans did change. I think that's probably something that helped us adjust, you know, like when we were fleeing Mexico at the end of March, like hightailing it back into the U S cause we thought the border was going to shut down. We were like, okay, this is what it is. We're going to make a decision and go. And we weren't necessarily disappointed by it because we knew that that was always a risk. And luckily other people had put so much content out and shared so openly because that gave us an opportunity to prepare for that mentally ahead of time. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I know one of the other things that you mentioned was you guys didn't necessarily want to have to work a ton on the road, which is the intent yeah. with having the real estate business. And I've talked to a couple other people on the podcast and in person who are managing rentals from the road and both short and long term. And it's almost like the people who I've talked to who are still in their careers who are managing real estate seem to be working the absolute least of anyone I've talked to. Yeah. So, and we, and on the flip side, we've met people who are like, you know what? And this is uh, like, Alyssa and I were in this boat and I don't necessarily know that it's the best boat to be in, which was we're going to go try to travel and figure out this business that's going to support this travel while we're traveling. So it definitely can take away from the element of like, I'm leisurely getting to see the country because I'm also trying to get a business started or something like mm -hmm. that. And, and, and burnout can happen because you're trying to do everything at the same time. So when you guys did hit the road for that six month period, because you had all these rental properties in place, were you doing much work? I don't think we did any work. I mean, <laughs> we, I said that because the thing is, like, we weren't sure if we'd even have phone service or, or internet or anything because we were going, we went over the whole country. So we were kind of like preparing for the worst case scenario. So, like, I had two people with keys to all of our rentals here. I had like, 
several backup contacts in case we weren't able to get in touch. I had referral agreements with another agent if any of my clients had wanted to buy something while I was gone so that I didn't have to touch that um, part of the business. All my clients knew that I was gone. Like they were probably annoyed with me. because they're like, oh, so that's what I bought a house from you for last year. So you could go off to Mexico for six months while I'm here, you know? So that, um, I think we kind of prepared for that ahead of time. And then when we got on the road, the only thing I think we did was um, we try to pre-lease. So we try to find out way early if our tenants are going to stay for a second year or not, if they're good tenants. So we started sending those emails out in like February and like, hey, are you going to stay or not? We need to know by the end of March. And then if they were or not, we would know by March. And then we started advertising for rent for like an August 1st lease date mm-hmm. in like April. So we do it all ahead of time. And then we leave like two weeks for turnovers. So, so it's really ratcheted down now, but th- that's why, because like, we definitely learned from your guys's journey. Like I would have been happy to go on the adventure and figure it out, but that is just not my husband's style at all. And I respect that because, you know, it should be fun. And if he's going to hate life because he's so worried about money, like there's no reason to be out on the road, you know? So I was willing to wait and get things ratcheted down. And now in hindsight, I'm so glad that we did because, you know, thank goodness we're in a position now where everything that happened this year, like we really weren't affected by it. We have been stuck at home, but that's it. And like, we're very, very lucky and very fortunate because like all of our renters have been able to pay their rent on time. We were able to find a safe housing for ourselves. And like, I really can't complain about that because we know we'll get another opportunity in the future. It's just, when is the question? (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. I mean, hearing, hearing you talk about real estate makes me think, you know, that would be a really fun path, uh, especially now that we bought our first house. I'm like, oh, that's not so bad. You know what mm, I mean? Yeah. And, you know, on the Western Slope in Colorado, where we are, it is really popular. And there's a lot of people moving out here from big cities like Denver and stuff. So recognize there's probably going to be, a, there's a really strong rental demand because very few houses are up for rent. So I'm like, if there became a time where borders open up again, which I believe they will, hopefully this year, that would be amazing with the, um, with everything going on. So, you know, I, I could see us definitely doing something like getting into what you guys have built. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of it's, it's such a lightweight management piece once you have yeah. it all. And I know a lot of work goes into the front end. So um, is there any other tools and resources for managing your rentals? I know you talked about cozy and a couple other ones that have been really helpful for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, probably on the front end, like when I was learning about this bigger pockets is a huge resource, like their podcasts and their books. Um, I always tell people to go back as far to the beginning as they possibly can, because that's when they started really with the beginner knowledge of stuff. Um, so that's been a great resource for me. Check in your local area. I know it's hard with meetups right now, but a lot of places have local real estate investor groups too with meetups. So you can just, you can learn a lot from that. I mean, there's in our local area, there's a great Facebook group for investors. Um, but yeah, just like talking to people and learning from them. Obviously it's hard in real estate. Cause if you're like, I'm new, I want to learn everything. A lot of the season people kind of tune you out, but I, w- I mean, for me too, I think I just started analyzing properties too. If you learn just like a few basics, like on cap rate and cash on cash return, little things like that, start looking at what's in your local area. Like even for you, Heath, you could look at what local rent rates are right now and run those against what's for sale and kind of figure out if there is a niche somewhere. And you should, you know, that's just hypothetical stuff on the computer that you can kind of just start daydreaming about and see what would work in your local area, you know? 
Yeah, I love it. I, I probably am going to go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Well, yeah. J- Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing your story. If there's a, is there a good place for people to connect with you online at all? Yeah, so I try not to work too, too much. So I don't have like a website or anything like that. But Instagram is the best way. I'm like very approachable. I'm always happy to help whoever. Um, my personal one is at Jordy Ashy, like A-S-H-Y. And then we do have a travel Instagram too. If you want to see like our RV trip, we tried to document a ton of it. I still have a ton of video content we have to go through and edit. It was kind of funny because like it's like an adventure, like trying to escape the country and stuff. And like, and, like we got pulled over by the police in Mexico and Ian just wore him out and they let us go because he was so annoyed he was like just go so we have all that on video that we still have wow that one is um at uh jordan and ian travel awesome well jordan thank you so much for coming on the podcast thanks for having me have a good one Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, Heath would absolutely love it if you left him a review on iTunes. And if you want to see all the lovely notes and links from Jordan and from our sponsor today, Air Skirts, head over to heathandalissa.com and check them out. That's Heath, like the candy bar, and Alyssa, like a name that no one ever spells correctly. You can probably Google it. It might come up. I'm not sure. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.